Let's pray. Father, (laughs) this is our story. Our story begins with you. It's carried forth because of you, and it will end with you. You are the sovereign God who reigns above all. You are the great creator who's placed the stars and the sun, and you are the very God who's going to remove them. Lord, you stand as the just and holy one who demands righteousness. And in your grace, you have seen fit to provide a means so that we could be called righteous. Because, Lord, there is no way. (laughs) There is no way we could do this on our own. The testimony we heard this morning could be echoed by everyone in this room who knows you as their Savior. Oh, it may not be abortion, but we can fill in the blank. And the bottom line is we live life for our own self-glory, not for you. Father, you've got a different plan for this globe than what we see around us. And we are so grateful that in 2 Peter, we hear the end of the story, which is really the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth. And, oh, Lord, we long for that day. Guide us as we come to the word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, if you would, turn to Second Peter 3, verse 8, is where we are. Chapter 3 of Second Peter, verse 8. Several years ago, well, many years ago now, I'm showing my age, I had the opportunity of hearing... Eli Wiesel. Some of you know who he is. He wrote in a very candid, horrid, and deeply poignant autobiographical account of his survival as a teenager in a Nazi camp. He states these words, never again shall I forget that night, became the title of the book. He states, the first night in camp which had turned my life into one long night. Never shall I forget those moments, listen to what he says, which murdered my God, my soul, and my dreams were turned to dust. (laughs) Suffering, especially in light of injustices, can leave one resonating with Mr. Wiesel's words. Where are you, O God? If you're so powerful and loving, why don't you act? These questions have been asked throughout the generations. They were asked during the time of Peter. And Peter's writing this epistle, this letter, to a group of believers who are being swayed by some false teachers who are saying, you know what, we have a solution to those questions, and that is God really doesn't care. (laughs) There is no final judgment. In fact, these 75 years or so on the globe, you just need to live and enjoy for yourself because it really doesn't matter. And sadly, that rhetoric percolates still even today. And so Paul is, or Peter has spent some time trying to show, hey, this is the character of the false teachers. This is the content of their teaching. And now he comes back to the believer. 
And he wants to shore them up. And he wants to strengthen their faith and, and recognize, no, this is who God is. This is what God is doing. And this is what he will do. And no, he is not silent. He is not, according to Elie Wiesel, murdered. Our God is alive and well. So let's look at the text, starting in verse 8. Peter writes, now, dear friends, there's that phrase again we saw at the first verse of this chapter. We stated that that phrase occurs five times in 2 Peter, only twice in 1 Peter. Why? Because Peter knows he's about to die. He mentions that earlier in this epistle. And there's this tenderness, there's this concern that, hey, you know, keep on, keep persevering. And so you see this tenderness. He says, dear friends, do not let this one thing escape your notice. That a single day is like, he's using metaphorical language here, but a day is like a thousand years with the Lord. And a thousand years are like a single day. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but is being patient towards you because he does not wish for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. But, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. <laughs> it will come. It's going to come like a thief. When it comes, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise. The celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. And the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must we, followers of Jesus, be? Well, we need to be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of this day, the heavens will be burned up and dissolve, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. If you're following along in the notes, I, I, this first section is, is God's look at time. And as Peter's writing, again, this backdrop of the false teachers are wah, 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 wah. They keep speaking into the things. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. You need to hear this. He says, listen, dear friends, do not let this thing escape. You need to sit up and take nourishment. You need to pay attention to what I'm writing to you. It is very important. The false teachers would like you to forget these things. Remember, we talked about last week the importance of remember. Remember the truths that you have been taught from the prophets, from the, uh, taught from the apostles. And he says, one day is like a thousand years. Now, Peter is quoting most likely from Psalm 90. That, not, that psalm was the psalm of Moses, which these words occur. Psalm 90 tries to do two things. First, it shows us the reliability of God's judgment. Now, again, remember the false teacher is saying, this isn't going to happen. But Psalm 90 verse 2 says, you, O Lord, brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, no one's going to get the upper hand on you. You are the one. Your judgment will be secure. It will occur. It is reliable. And then Psalm 90 highlights that God is eternal, and it shows the contrast between that and human frailty, human life. Verse 6 of Psalm 90 says, Like the new grass of the morning, in the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered away. If you live in the desert, you understand. It gets green and then it dies quickly. And so what 
Psalm 90 is saying and what Peter is echoing here is that God is eternal and unfailing. His judgment is reliable and it's such a contrast scene with human frailty that is brief life. And notice he says, a single day is like a thousand years. I was thinking through this, a, a great analogy is a family that's going to go to King's Island for the weekend, right? For the kids, that whole week is like a thousand years. When's it coming? When are we leaving, right? For the parents, they just pray they get one more day so they can pack, right? And you know, I see some smiles. Yes, that's the idea here. It, it, the, that from God's perspective, this is nothing. From human perspective, which is 75 plus years on this globe, it seems for eternity. And so what are some principles that we can walk away with as we look at this text? First of all, whether in judgment or for the purpose of salvation, God's timing is perfect. God isn't in a hurry, I hate to tell you. There's, and there's not going to be a delay because he got caught in traffic or he forgot his cell phone at the house. Sound familiar? Nor is it going to happen that things just fell into place. No, 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 no. Or, or that he's going to grow weak or perhaps forget that there was this plan he set in motion. No, the Lord knows exactly what he is going to accomplish and when it is going to be accomplished. Isaiah 46, great text. It says, remember this so that you can be brave. Now, listen to this. Listen to the Israelites, but think about it, you rebels. Remember what I accomplished in antiquity? This is the Lord speaking. Truly, I am God. I have no peer. I am God. There is none like me who announces the end from the beginning, reveals beforehand what has not yet occurred, who says, my plan will be realized. I will accomplish what I desire. It's what you want in a politician, but it isn't going to happen, right? It's what you hope the teacher does with the syllabus. It may not happen, but with the Lord, it will. It is his plan. It's taken a long time for Peter to learn this lesson. <laughs> Think about the life of Peter in the Gospels. It was he who jumped out of the boat prematurely and then realized, oh, wait a minute, I, I can't walk on water. Or a refusal to see that Jesus needed to suffer and he struggled with that. Or when he pulled out a sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear. Time and time again, Peter is wrestling with God and his timing. But he now sees it all the more clear that yes, God, your timing is perfect. And so we see that here in 2 Peter 3. Another principle we can glean is that whether in judgment or in the purpose of salvation, God's patience is evident. That was what we heard in the testimony this morning is God's patience. If God wasn't patient, there'd be a lot of piles of rocks <laughs> or ash around. Notice what the text says in verse 9. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise as someone regards slowness. Oh, no. The text tells us he's being patient. And this promise goes back to verse 4 and saying, what has he promised in return? And that's what we have seen. And here it's being answered. Joel 2, return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and boundless in loyal love. Or Habakkuk 2, 
For the message is a witness to that what is decreed. It gives reliable testimony on how matters will turn out. Even if the message is not fulfilled right away, wait patiently, for it will surely come to pass. It will not arrive late. Why? Why is he patient? Notice what the text says. Because he does not wish for any to perish. Paul echoes the same words in 1 Timothy 2, since he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, this doesn't speak for universal salvation, because even in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 2, it says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's God. So you have to be careful here. But what God would desire is that none should perish. That's why he sent his son to, to die for the world, that all might believe. And time and time again through history, we've seen God's patience. I mean, just think about the Old Testament. It, did, it took 120 years for Noah to build a boat. And some of you are saying, I've had a few subcontractors like that. Yes, a long time, 120 years. Well, what is God doing? Here's an object lesson, folks. Repent. Abraham, <laughs> there was this whole dialogue going back and forth. Well, God, if you could find, if there's 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare them? And God is patient with Abraham because there's this, this bidding war going on. We get down to 10, and there's not even 10 in Sodom and Gomorrah. Or what about the plagues? It wasn't one in Zoom, God judged. No, he gives them 10 plagues. That's a lot of bullfrogs. It's a lot of boils. And yet, there's no repentance on the part of the Egyptians. Later, Paul says on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he says, Therefore, although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, the same God who's given us life and breath is in the context. He now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness. There's a day coming. And the false teachers are saying, ah, it's not coming. Do whatever you want. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. The only reason there's a delay is so that you'll repent. That's the only reason. The text tells us this, right? Because he does not wish for any to perish. This day of the Lord then is expounded on in verse 10. The day of the Lord is a phrase that occurs 20 times in the Old Testament. It's a time of salvation. It's a time of judgment. Uh, there's a little box there in your notes. It's a time in which God outpours his wrath upon the unrighteous and he vindicates the righteous. Earlier in chapter two of Second Peter, we saw the fallen angels, remember this, the generation from the time of Noah and the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, he, and Peter talked about that in light of judgment. He Indirectly, I think he's coming back to that here in these verses. Because the day of the Lord is the culmination and judgment of the fallen angels. That Noah's day, that, that served as a uh, kind of a foretaste of what we're going to see. And the Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction by fire, well, it's, it's also a depiction of what is going to occur. In fact, we're going to see in many ways these verses there are a ton of connections with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 10 through 13 of 2 Peter. It shouldn't surprise us. Sodom and Gomorrah became the archety archetypal story for eschatological judgment, 
associated with the day of the Lord. You say, oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. Look at the words of Christ in Matthew 10. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than this town. It's Chorazin. It's Bethsaida. And it's Capernaum. That was Jesus' hometown. We give tours to Capernaum. I mean, you, you could talk all day. There's so many scenes from Capernaum and the Gospels. And he says of them, it's going to be worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, Sodom and Gomorrah serves as the, the template. It's sin city. As God was patient, don't miss this, for the purpose of saving Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord wishes that all should repent before final judgment. Second Peter 3, as I mentioned, makes several connections with the day of the Lord and I think Sodom and Gomorrah. So let me just point these out to you. The first of these is the day of the Lord will be an unleashing of what has been stored up. Notice the text. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and when it comes, the heavens will be brought down, the earth and every deed on it will be laid bare. This idea, these, these things that have been stored up for judgment are now gonna be exposed Deuteronomy 32 speaks of the time when the Lord who has stored up judgment will judge. And it's interesting, Israel's enemies, it's in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah again. So you see the verbiage, the the link here between three, uh, actually three, seven, it talks about this, this heavens and earth have been reserved for fire. But it, and being kept for this idea which now is being exposed in verse 10. And so the day of the Lord is an unleashing. Secondly, we see it's sudden and sure. He says it's going to come as a thief, which there are several places in the New Testament that talks about when the day comes, it will come like a thief. A decent thief does not announce he or she is coming. <laughs> They don't send out a mailing first to say, oh, by the way, on this date, I plan to come and rob you. There's no public announcement on Nextdoor app. Oh, by the way, 124 Maple Street, I'm going to be robbing on this date. That doesn't happen. It's unannounced, but it's sure. And that's the, the idea here is that the Lord will keep his promise. Interesting in Isaiah 13, the Lord says he's going to keep his promise to Babylon just like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. The connections are huge. I mean, if we turn this tapestry over of Scripture, you're going to see these threads being woven all the way through. And sadly, for Sodom and Gomorrah, they become this type that you see then highlighted time and time again that brings us to this point. Why? Because God's created order has been turned upside down and unrighteousness, which God never designed for his creation, has taken over. And Romans 8 says, even the creation groans, it longs to be brought out of this bondage of sin. And that's why it leads us to the other point that we see here in 2 Peter, and that is the day of the Lord will result in a transformation of the cosmos Notice in verse 10, it says there will be a horrific noise. This could be thunder. It could be the crackling of fire. Who knows? 
But it, it's going to be loud and disturbing. Then it says that, that heavens will disappear and the celestial bodies. This, this phrase is hard to define. So I'm going to lay it out and you can figure it out on your own and then let me know. Because uh, there's three ways to look at it. It could be that the elements here, which the Net Bible is translating celestial bodies, could be the, the things of the earth, the elements of earth, the physical universe. Others argue, no, 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 it's, it's speaking of the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, which is a little hard because he just said the heavens will melt away. The, the third idea is that these are the evil spirits that will be eradicated. Um, Isaiah 34 seems to suggest this, but regardless, <laughs> the Lord is going to slice through it all and get right down to earth. And notice why. And it's going to look at every deed that's done. It's going to lay, the text is, it says, it lays it bare. That term is a medical, it's, um, it's used for refinement. We sometimes think of this being like the Death Star and Star Wars, and we're going to take out the planet, you know, Princess Leia's hometown. Boom. Uh, it's just gone. But it has this idea of refinement. We'll get to this in a minute because Malachi 3 says, For who can endure the day of the coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Regardless of how you see this, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a template of what's going to happen here. And why? Because the Lord is going to expose. He's going to strip it all away. And no one is going to say, Oh, you didn't see this. No, no, no. All deeds will be exposed. It's interesting. Remember when the Lord said to Abraham, I've got to go to Sodom and Gomorrah because I'm going to explore, examine their sin. It's stated seven times in Genesis. And the idea here as well, we're pulling back the curtain. There's nothing that can be hidden. And the text then states that all these things are to melt away. And again, there are some that argue this is also referring to earth itself because we have a new heavens and a new earth. So that is why others argue, no, 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 no. It's a refinement and there's a renewal with earth, not an annihilation. Again, scholars debate. I'll give you a couple of reasons why I lean for the latter. One is God said his creation is good. Secondly, creation is longing to be liberated from the bondage of decay Third, the, the term new in verse 13 is a term, there's a Greek term that talks about moving something and, and transplanting it, changing it all out. That's not the term. The term that is being used is remodeling, refinement, redoing. And I would argue the pattern of the flood. God did not wipe out that which he said was good, but he certainly wiped out sin. Regardless, there's a judgment coming, correct? <laughs> And, and it, it's repeated twice in verses 10 through 13 because Peter wants you to, to recognize what the false teachers are saying is not true. There is a day coming. Now, let me give you some things to hang on your beak this morning. We can rest in knowing that not one single event occurs outside of God's sovereign control, right? Proverbs 21, there is no wisdom, no understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. 
Another individual who survived the Holocaust, Corey Timboom, unlike Elie Wiesel, understood that God does exist and that he is sovereign. And she makes this statement, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to an unknown God. We might question, how is God going to do these things? But we don't need to question the character of our God. He is faithful. He is just. He is good. A couple years ago, I was looking at our fireplace in our family room, and I absolutely hated it from the time we moved in. It had this tile around it, and I said, that's it. I just started ripping it off. My wife came home from work, and she's so gracious and kind. And I'm sure she was thinking, she goes, oh, that's interesting. Um, which means, what in the world did you just do, right? Right now, you may be currently in a construction site. <laughs> Everything might seem to be in shambles, pieces laying everywhere, and the general contractor does not appear to be in control. You know what I'm saying. Peter reminds us that God is in charge. His plan is right on course, and the Lord will see it successfully to completion. His sovereignty does not mean that we are robots. That's usually what then I hear as a counteract. No, no, no. God has created us in his image. We have a will, and that's why he's giving us a choice. He wishes that none should perish, but the choice is up to the individual to determine. Even in this passage, he does not guarantee, again, that all will have eternal life. One person wrote this, and I thought it was great. The God of the scripture is so big, wise, and powerful that he can grant true, meaningful, and real choices to angels and humans alike in a way that allows them to act freely within their finite limits without inhibiting his sovereign plan in any way. And indeed, using their meaningful choices, even their disobedience, in a way to fulfill his sovereign plan. Choice is a bittersweet gift. Then listen to what he writes. Those in heaven will always be grateful they had it and will have it always and with no fear of sin or condemnation. Those in hell will always regret that they did not exercise it differently. Whew. That's a great quote. Nothing is outside of God's control. And when I read 2 Peter, I take great comfort in knowing that. And we should all as believers. Secondly, we can rejoice that God's sovereignty is always accompanied by wisdom and love. Psalm 145, I will declare your great deeds. They will talk about the, the, the time of your great kindness and sing about your justice the Lord, listen to this, is merciful and compassionate. He is patient and demonstrates great loyal love. The most heinous crime in history was not the Holocaust, despite how heinous it was. It was the crucifixion of Christ, God's son. The event which occurred with the boundaries of the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God for the crucifixion did what God's power and will had dictated before time ever began. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that no one should perish. <laughs> That's our God. And as we read these things that we see in Second Peter and you 
you see this destruction that's coming and judgment that's coming, don't forget, we got a God who loves. <laughs> He's a God of wisdom. And may we not lose sight of God's hand. We may again, we may wonder whether he cares, but you need to cling to the one who claims he does care. Psalm 13 is nestled in there in the Psalter. It's a little psalm, short psalm. And it's borderline blasphemous. Because listen to what it says. How long, O Lord, will you continue to ignore me? How long will you pay no attention to me? How long must I worry and suffer? How long will my enemy gloat? Look at me, O Lord. Answer me. Revive me or else I will die. And then my enemy will rejoice. Listen to verse 5. But I trust. What? In your faithfulness. I trust in your character. I don't understand these things, but I trust in you. May I rejoice because of your deliverance. I will sing praises to the Lord when he vindicates. Why? Because the psalmist knows I've seen God's hand in the past. I know God's character and I will trust him for the future. This is our God. That construction site that you're enduring, metaphorically, it, it might look like a mess, but you can trust the general contractor. He's in charge. He is faithful. We can relish in the hope that nothing can remove us from the loving arms of the Lord. That really leads us to this other point here. Is we see this in verse, look at chapter 2, verse 3. Look what he states here. He talks about the false teachers and condemnation, but don't miss this, their destruction. And, and then he goes, and I'm sorry, verse 9. He says, God will not spare them. And in verse 9, he reiterates this. He says, and so he will reserve the unrighteous for the day of judgment, but he will rescue the godly from trials. Don't run ahead of God. Allow him to lead. Don't worry or panic. You can trust him to provide. Don't cling to things in this world, but rest in knowing that Christ is all you need. Corey Timbu made another quote that I just love. She said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. That's a lady who walked through Ravensbrück, who walked through Dachau as a Holocaust survivor, who lost family, and she can say there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Wow. No, Mr. Elie Wiesel, God has not been murdered. He's on the throne. He reigns. And Second Peter is reminding this of this so we see God's perspective or looking at time. And now we look at our response here in the text, starting in verse 11. He said, since all these things are to melt away, what sort of people must we be? And he, he lays this out and he says, first of all, we need to be living a life of godliness and holiness. That's active voice. This is a pursuit. It doesn't happen by osmosis. And so he says, this is our pursuit in verse 12. And he says, and furthermore, we need to wait expectantly for the future hope that we have. Again, an idea, excuse me, that we need to be active. We are called to live lives. And I love it that verse 11 is nestled between verses 10 and 12. Because 10 and 12 talk about, it's, it's repetitious. It's God's going to judge. 
And so we need to be holy in the midst of it, is his idea here that he's laying out. Notice he says there in the text, we need to, in verse 12, while we're waiting, hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. (laughs) I remember the angels that said to Lot, hurry up, get going. We're about ready to destroy this place. It's the same idea. Hurry up, hasten. Well, how do we as believers hasten the day of the Lord? Well, let me give you four ways. One is found easily here in the text. Verse nine, that is repent. Repent is a way of hastening. Preaching the gospel, Matthew 24 says we're to to evangelize, we're to preach the good news. The work that needs to be accomplished on this earth. Matthew 6 tells us we need to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally in verse 11, I would argue a way we hasten is through our conduct, walking in holiness. Now, there are those who hold to a belief that God doesn't really know the future. And he's dependent on humans and they'll use this text John Sanders writes, God has a goal, but the routes remain open. Really? This is, God does not, this idea that God does not know the time of the end until it actually happens is contrary to both, I would argue, Old Testament and New Testament, and is certainly contrary to Intertestament Jewish literature that argues, no, God is in charge. He knows all things. He doesn't change his mind. His plan is amazingly consistent in the way in which prophecy and their fulfillment are developed over time in the Bible. In fact, let me give you a text, Isaiah 60, which is a promise to the future glory of Israel. The Lord states, and listen to this, I am the Lord in its time, I will hasten it. You see, God in his grace is taking into account human affairs and we have the joy of being a part of what God is seeking to accomplish, but he is sovereign. He is not dependent on his creation. He is all powerful. He's not dependent on his creation and he is all knowing and he is not dependent on his creation. Who has been his counselor? (laughs) Well, Lord, let me tell you how this is gonna work. You know, I think you should come back on September the 29th. You know, I got a final exam that next week. Yeah, you know, or, or, or Lord, wait, make sure you wait till after spring break. You know, then come, you know, we've got this timeshare that we're going to use. And Wally Wally Washington, it's just great. We, we can't give that up. No. He is sovereign. He is all powerful and he is all knowing. And notice the promise. He started with the promise in this section. He ends with it. According to his promise, we are waiting, and I love this, for a new heaven and a new earth. Scripture time and time again speaks of this. The book of Isaiah, for instance, Revelation 21. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is the most glorious promise in all of the Bible. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, I'm about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. In the present system in which we live, where there's a prolifera of injustices, pain, suffering, and sin, the good news is 
it'll all be eradicated. Not just eradicated, it will be dealt with according to the sin. Because we have a just God. I was watching a documentary on all the Nazi war criminals that really got off scot-free. They were saying only 200 of the, I think it was 3,000 Eisen Group and uh, the death squads, uh, soldiers were, were brought to justice. Only 200. And the, it ends on such a sad note, this documentary. And I thought, no, no. <laughs> we got a God who is going to be, who is going to deal with sin. They didn't get off. Oh, no. They might, on this side of eternity, it may look that way. But there's a day coming when God will judge. Because he's not been murdered. He is victorious. And this new abode, notice this, in which righteousness truly resides. Who dwells in Sodom and Gomorrah? The unrighteous. Who dwells in the new heavens and the new earth? The righteous. And so what do we do with this? Let me give you a couple other things to hang there on your beak. Number one, we find hope in knowing a glorious future awaits God's people. J.I. Packer in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, makes this point. A promise is a word that reaches into the future, creating a bond of obligation on the part of the one who gives it and an expectation on the part of the one who receives it. That our mighty creator should have bound himself to us uh, to use his power fulfilling promises demonstrates great grace and shows what a precious promise it is. God would enter. Who is he to make a promise to us? We don't, we're not owed a promise. But in his grace, he has done so. 1 Corinthians 2. What's the ultimate promise? Again, a new heavens and a new earth. 1 Corinthians 2, but it has been written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them who love him. Heaven will be far more radiant than the most vivid sunrise, more majestic than any mountain, more splendid than any field of flowers, and more awesome than the crashing waves of the ocean. We will be with our God. It will be with those who've made a profession in Christ, who've placed their faith in him. Those who've gone before us will be there as well. What a day. We have hope in a glorious future. Secondly, our affections should not be on the temporal, but on the eternal. In Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding his place in him. Whew. Our hope, our expectations are not here in how many Lego sets you have. It's in heaven. It's not the job promotion. It's, it's not how many kids you have and how successful they are or how large the house is or what gated community you live in. No, it's in, it's in the Lord. The church is called, yes, to be the salt and light. Yes, we're called to hold back sin by being involved in political offices and, and being involved in our communities. But our faith and hope is found solely in the Lord. We're looking to a new heavens and a new earth. No wonder in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, looking to this end. Give us our 365 daily bread, 
give us storehouses so that we have them. No, he says, give us our daily bread. What is sufficient for now? And there's so much we could say about that, but at the end of the day, why? Because our hope isn't here, it's in the future. And finally, we live our lives in order to please our Lord, do we not? That's what the text says. We live our lives conducting it in holiness and godliness. The stakes are real and they are high. God is not playing games. We're told to conduct our lives in this holiness, which is to be separated. And the godliness here really can be translated to worship well. This is what he desires. It's been said, then, speaking of when I get to heaven, Lord, shall I fully know, but not till then, how much I owe. God's timing is perfect. God's patience, it's supernatural, trust me, from one who's very impatient. And God's promises, they're eternal. What a great God we serve. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful. You already have the plan in motion. There's no guesses there's no wringing of hands hoping that it all turns out right or that everyone makes the right decision. No, 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 no. <laughs> who is your counselor? Who is the one who gives you advice? You are the almighty God. And Father, in the midst of your sovereignty, in the midst of your justice, you ooze with grace, patience, and love. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that there's a day coming when you will vindicate the crud that's in this globe. And there's a day coming when we will be in your presence for all eternity. One day is like a thousand years. Oh Lord, may today be the day when your son appears and we meet him in the air and we are caught up with those who've gone before us. Well, until then, may we be found faithful, walking in holiness and godliness, hastening the day. In Jesus' name, amen.